Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse, an evangelist of incredible intellect, extraordinary language skills, and a true expositor of the scriptures. Today, Barnhouse presents a study on the assurance of salvation. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for all of thy love and kindness to us day by day, thy grace and faithfulness. Wilt thou take thy word to each heart in this hour and use it to thy glory? We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Today I bring a message that has been a very great blessing to many people. And... It seems to me that if we can give this message on the assurance of salvation, how we can know that we have eternal life, it may help many people to have the foundation of experimental holiness, this knowledge and certainty of the present possession of eternal life. The practical basis of experimental holiness is the assurance that the work of salvation has been done in our hearts and that it has been done forever. No Christian can ever enter into the depths of the Christian life, nor can he ever become useful for God until he comes to a place of certainty as to his own relationship with God. As long as a man has any doubts as to his own personal salvation, he can never communicate a living, vital faith to others. Yet there are innumerable Christians who have no certain assurance of their salvation. They can say nothing beyond the fact that they hope they'll be saved. They're trying to be saved. They're doing their best to be saved. But none of these have the sure, strong knowledge of the present certainty of salvation, which is the God-given right of every soul who has been saved through Jesus Christ. Those who teach that we have no right to certainty are perfectly described in the epistle to the Hebrews. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye ought to be teachers, Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For every one that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Thus God teaches us very definitely that there is a difference between spiritual babyhood and the strong position of one who has grown into spiritual manhood. The difference between a babe and an adult is that the adult has passed through adolescence and has had his body so developed that he is now able to reproduce himself in the next generation. The child cannot do this. So God rightfully complains that many believers remain babes when they should be teachers, capable of bringing others to a knowledge of Christ. The next verses of this passage show that the elemental truths must be known and built upon as a foundation and that when the foundation is secure, it must henceforth be taken for granted, and our time given to the building of the superstructure. So Hebrews 6.1 says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now we must pause for a moment, however, to make the plan of salvation very plain and sure. One simple illustration will suffice for this. 
Some time ago, a group of young people from a church in another part of our city asked if they could have a conference with me on the subject of salvation. About 30 of them came to our evening service one Sunday and afterwards came to our home to talk this matter over in an intimate way. One young woman spoke for the group and asked how they could know that their salvation was sure. Just exactly what does God require of us was the way she put it. I answered the whole group by replying to her personally. I said, I, I'm going to play with you a game of truth and consequences. Will you agree that you will do something I require of you, and if you do not do it, that you must abide by the consequence that I will set before you? The consequence is that unless you do what I demand of you, you can never leave this house. Her fiancé was there, and there was a little bantering, but finally she agreed. And in the sight of all the 30, I, I pointed out now that she was bound, unless she did what I required of her, that she was bound to remain in the house until it had been accomplished. And when she had agreed, I put before her the following. I held in my hand, my right hand, a fountain pen. And showing it to her, I said, now here's a fountain pen that's different from any other pen in the world. This difference lies in the following fact. On the barrel of the pen, you will see that my signature is engraved. When I purchased the pen, they put it in a machine and gave me a metal stylus with which I was to sign my name on a metal plate, just as I would sign it on a check or other document. As I did so, electrical impulses communicated that signature to an engraving tool, and my signature was engraved on the barrel of the pen. Now I asked her if she had a pen exactly like it, one that was marked with my signature, and of course she replied that she had not. All right, now, I said, here is my demand of you. You know the consequence. My demand is that you put in my right hand the fountain pen that has my signature on it. Do you have one? No, she did not. Well, then I said, what are you going to do? Well, she said, I suppose that I shall be required to ask lodging for the night and that my fiancé go and get me one tomorrow. I said, but he can't. There is none other. I have never done this on any other pen. Well, she said, I, I suppose I'm, I'm condemned to stay in the house for the rest of my life. And the young people laughed and spoke about our having a star border for a long existence. And when the point had been thoroughly made and all 30 had agreed that under the terms of truth and consequences, she was now bound to stay in that house and that there was no possible release from it, I then, with my left hand, offered her the pen as a gift. I said, now I hold this pen out to you with my left hand, and I offer it to you as a free gift. I, I ask you if you will take this pen as a gift. And she said, yes, I will. And she reached out her hand and accepted it. And I let her hold it for a few moments, and then I said, what are you going to do with it? And she said, I'm going to put it back in your right hand. And she did so. And the moment that she had put that pen back in my right hand, all of them agreed that she was now perfectly free from the obligation. She had fulfilled that which I had required of her. Since there was only one condition, she was then perfectly free to go. And so she took the pen out of my left hand and placed it in my right hand in order that she might see how simple it was. And then I made the spiritual application, which is not only for her, but which is for everyone who hears these words. God the Father, the Righteous One, the Holy One, demands of us that which we do not possess. The right hand of His holiness and justice is extended toward us, and He demands that we give Him 
a righteousness equal to his own. His very nature requires him to ask perfection of all who would enter his presence, there to live and abide in fellowship with him forever. I remember one of my professors saying that the righteousness of God was that righteousness which his holiness requires him to require. But when I examine my attainments in the light of God's demands, I see that I have nothing that I could ever offer to him, and I know myself to be condemned unless he does something about it. And then the left hand of his love shows me the cross. There I learned that he took my sin and provided me with his own righteousness. Nothing else can satisfy God. Nothing can replace this righteousness. And then by faith, I, as a poor sinner, lost sinner, I go to the cross of Christ to receive the righteousness of my Savior. And after I have received it, I go back to God and place that righteousness in the hand of his demand. And all his requirements are met once and forever. I am received immediately, and in me there is planted the life of Christ, eternal life. Therefore, I have as a present possession, I have eternal life now, a permanent and a present possession. Only the man who possesses and knows that he possesses great wealth can live largely and help others. A man who possesses but is not sure whether his account is good and therefore does not draw upon it is for all practical purposes a pauper. So it is with this question of the present possession of eternal life. I know that I am saved. I am just as sure that I am going to be in heaven as I'm sure that my Lord Jesus Christ is already in heaven. The first time that I ever heard anyone make a statement like that, it took my breath away for a moment. And I then realized that it was not conceited presumption, but the most simple faith. For the man who thus spoke had believed God's word and knew that his salvation depended on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And therefore he dared believe that what God said about it is true. The only conceit that is to be found in the matter of assurance is that of the person who believes it to be possible to lose his salvation and who still continues to believe that he is saved. He is in the conceited position of believing that he has lived up to whatever conditions he thinks are involved in his conditional salvation. Oh, if salvation were conditional, who would live in any other state than mortal fear? But perfect love casteth out fear, and it is not our perfect love, but his perfect love that makes it impossible to fear when we have simply rested in the finished work of Calvary. The word of God is the guarantee of our salvation and the ground of our assurance. We remember that Christ spake as one having authority and not as the scribes. And those who follow him, filled with his spirit, speak with like assurance. Luke begins his gospel writing of those things which are most surely believed among us. John writes with a certainty that is one of the marks of his authorship. The gospel that bears his name and the longest of his epistles carry at their close definite statements concerning the purpose of the writing and name the group to which they are addressed. We turn to the gospel of John and read, These are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. God is not primarily interested in the intellectual opinions of men, but he does want them to believe with that belief which produces life, 
that supernatural implantation of divine life, which is the work of God in the heart of the one who believes the simple statements that God has made concerning the death of his son. That gospel is addressed to you, no matter who you may be, for it is the gospel that is universal in its appeal, meeting as it does the need of the whole race. To every rebel comes the offer of settlement out of court. To every sinner comes the promise of supernatural life. You may become a partaker of the divine nature. You may have the righteousness of Christ put to your account and the life of Christ planted within you. So all of the sermons on the Christian life are worthless to the one who has not been born again. The gospel with its offer of salvation, with its settlement in grace of God's demands against the rebel is indeed for all. But parts of the scripture, like sermons on the Christian life, are for those only who have believed. Now at the close of 1 John, the writer says, These things have I written unto you that believe. So everything in that epistle is for believers only. Do not attempt to take the truths that we are going to study unless you know that your name is in the address. How different are the two groups mentioned in the gospel and the epistle covered by the single word, you. These things have I written unto you, these things have I written unto you. Ah, uh, the one is as broad as the universe, the other as narrow as the cross. A candidate for the presidency of the United States may speak into a microphone on a national broadcast and say, I want you, and that you will include every voter in the nation. But when he says to his wife, I want you to stand near me on inauguration day, the same three words have shrunk from millions to one. I want you. And this is precisely the effect of the two clauses in John's gospel and in John's epistle. These things have I written that you, and these things have I written to you. The one is as universal as the fever of the human race the other as endearing as a bridegroom speaking to his bride. Now this letter is written to believers. And I ask you who listen to me, perhaps who have not been born again, you're undoubtedly a person of honor. You would not open someone's letters without permission. You've been brought up to believe it most dishonorable to tamper with a letter addressed to someone else. Well, face then this fact. Have you believed? If not, then the rest of this book is not for you. If so, these things can be received by you. And what I am saying today is to those who have believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This then is faith. Faith is the turning away from everything that is in self and the utter reliance upon all that Christ has done for us. If this has been your experience, then you may claim the promise that goes with the resting in Christ. It is something that belongs to you then as a right. You have the right to say, I am saved. I have been born again. I now possess eternal life. You have that right because God has given you the authority to speak so. The Greek language is very strong on this point. Our English word power translates several different words from the original. There is the Greek word dunamis from which we get dynamo and dynamite, a word meaning explosive power. This is used by Paul in the great verse in Romans 1, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Then there's another Greek word, kratos, 
from which we get democrat, plutocrat, autocrat, aristocrat, and the other words denoting rule. There is a third word, exousia, which means authority, permit. It's the word used in the Gospel of John. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power, the authority, a permit, to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now it is this divine authority that makes it possible for the Christian to be bold in his claims of eternal life. Unfortunately, positive language is not in the vocabulary of many Christians. Their experience with Christ is a vague one. They have trusted him as best they know how and have closed their eyes for a leap in the dark, hoping that it will turn out all right. Someone has gone so far as to say that faith is gambling on God. Now, all this is foolishness in the light of the word of God, for faith is just the opposite of a gamble. Faith is reliance upon the rock that cannot be moved. We read in 2 Timothy 2.19, the solid foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Yes, we who have trusted in Christ and who have received his very life with its unending production of faith within us can claim the strong language of the New Testament for ourselves. Is there anything that can surpass the assurance of St. Paul? I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has a right to describe his experience in language as strong as this. We say again that we are as sure that we will be in heaven as we are sure that Christ will be there. This is not pride and presumption. It is simple trust. My assurance depends then not on myself, but upon that man, Jesus Christ. This Bible is my certificate of eternal union with him. I look to the cross and see him dying. Is he an imposter, or is he the eternal Jehovah made flesh in order to die in my place? When he died on the cross, he spoke those words, it is finished, which sealed my salvation forever. Now, as long as he is who he says he is, and as long as this book is what he claims it to be, then I may be persuaded that nothing can ever separate me from his love. And since one epistle was written that we might know that we have eternal life, I'm going to continue to say, I know that I have eternal life. To put it in any other way would cast aspersions upon the truthfulness of God. God recognizes the validity of this argument and says, if we receive the witness of men, that is, if we believe marriage certificates, timetables, bills, checks, and the thousand other works of faith that go to make up life, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. Oh, strange is it not that God should have to take the trouble to tell us this? How little we understand the difference between our fallible nature and his unchanging faithfulness. John then goes on to say, This is the witness of God which he hath testified of his Son. 
He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. That is, when we are born again, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within our hearts. It is he who whispers to us, My child, thou art mine. It is he who ever points to Christ to take our confidence away from ourselves and to put it forevermore in him. And then the climax is reached when God says, He that believeth not God hath made him a liar because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. I cannot insist too strongly that these words are not spoken to unbelievers concerning their failure to accept Christ. That failure does indeed give the lie to God, but it is not the lie spoken here. Beyond any doubt, the only allowable interpretation of this passage in John's epistle is the following. The believer who has admitted his own sinfulness, who has accepted God's verdict as to his lost condition, and who has turned to build on Christ alone, and who subsequently doubts that God has really planted eternal life within him as his present possession, thereby makes God a liar. It is as the summary of this teaching that God gives our text, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Not that ye may hope that you will have, but that you may know that you have. All that believers might realize that God cannot lie, and therefore that God does not lie when he says that he has given eternal life to all who have trusted his Son. He has not promised us anything short of eternal life. What do we read? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have six months' life? What foolishness. And if he did promise us six months' life, when could we lose it? Could it cease to be ours in five months? Of course not. Six months' life in the promise of God could not be lost before six months. We must never forget that the gifts of and calling of God are without repentance. Is it a ten-year life that he has given us? Then it could not be lost before ten years. What kind of life then does he say he has given to us? He says it is eternal life. But Lord, does it really mean that eternal life is eternal? He is as patient with us as with a small child, for he makes it doubly clear and sure, like the carpenter who turns the board over and clinches the nail on the other side. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. On the contrary, the life that God has given us is the life of his Son. All whom he has called, he has also justified, and all whom he has justified, he counts as already glorified. God never begins anything that he does not bring to an end. The world may start that which it cannot finish, but God says, he which hath begun a good work in you will keep on perfecting it until the day of Jesus Christ. Here are all three of the great doctrines of God's work within us. He which hath begun a good work in you, that's justification, will keep on perfecting it, that's sanctification, until the day of Jesus Christ, that's glorification. There is no change in God, and there will be no change in his work in us. This truth is taught in still another way in the epistles. God says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, 
whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. This is, of course, the plain announcement that the Holy Spirit, who has been the instrument of our new birth and who has come to dwell within us, making our bodies his temples, has also placed us in Christ, sealing us there until the day when he shall give us our eternal bodies and we shall be made like him in all things in reality as we have already been made like him in promise. It is the announcement that God has given us a gift that can never be lost. Were it anything less than this, we would have to read, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of your sin, or unto the day when God goes back on his promises, or until the day when the new creation can be uncreated. Oh, it's all so evident that no such event is possible. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. How great are the truths of God, how full his assurance. And we ask thee, our God, that thou shalt take these truths to every trembling heart, and that men and women this day might realize that if they have looked to the cross of Jesus Christ, thou hast put to their account in thy divine bookkeeping life eternal, and that they can come today to the place where they know that they have eternal life, and building on that foundation, go on to the depths of Christian living for thee. Hear us, we pray thee, for we ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.